So we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount today uh, this, for the past several months. And I hope you've enjoyed the study as much as I have. Um, Jesus has been teaching us what it looks like and, and how to have an empowered relationship with God. And he's been teaching us how to have a deep and vibrant, vibrant and growing relationship with God. A relationship that's above average, beyond typical, and most significant. He's shown us that a healthy relationship with God starts with you recognizing that you are a person in need. That you need God. A lot of people think that they're so smart, so good, so talented, so wealthy, so moral, that they don't need anything. And that includes God. But, but if you can recognize that you're a person in need and be poor in spirit, then God will meet you in your place of need and a transforming work in your life will begin. But if you can't admit that you're in need, then you won't be open to what God has. You won't even want the things of God. And why would you? Because you don't have a need. Look, if you've come to church today looking for God, because you need God, then you will leave filled. You will leave fulfilled today. If you've come poor, he will fill you. But if you've come today and you're already so full of yourself, what happens is, is you don't leave any room for God to speak to you. You don't leave any room for God to work. Uh, and a lot of people, they'll, they'll, they, they, some people come to church for God, and they're looking for God to fill them. Some people come to church so full of themselves, they're looking for other people to pat them on the back and give them the validation because they're already full of themselves. And you leave totally different. Jesus teaches us that if you want a healthy relationship with God, then you come poor. And God will lead you step by step to the place that is really most remarkable. And you never would have gotten there on your own. Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount to look deeper at the laws of God, to see more than just rules and regulations, but to see God's heart and character. He teaches us how to develop a deep connection with God, to, to be a giver in life. Because if you're, if you're a taker in life, you're likely to be a taker with God. So he says, don't be a taker in life, be a, be a giver. And it cha will change your relationship with God. He teaches you how to pray and how to pray a, a God-centered prayer. Most of us pray in ways where we are in the middle of it. And he says, no, 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 don't be so typical. Don't be so average. Take yourself out of the middle. Put God in the center of your prayers. He teaches about uh, fasting. And how do you do that where you say, God, I'm not owned by anything in this world. I will give up all because I desire you more. He then teaches about uh, leadership and principles in leadership. Um, one of the first principles he teaches, don't be judgmental. You, you're not going to be a good leader if you're judgmental. Uh, he teaches us don't, don't give the dogs don't give the pearls to the swine. Don't give them to the dogs. What he's teaching you is don't waste your time on people who aren't interested in changing, people who aren't interested in going deeper with God. There's lots of people in this world. Those are the ones, the ones that are hungry that you can help. You can't help everybody. Jesus wasn't able to help everybody because they weren't open to it. Look, then Jesus comes to the end of his sermon, and, and he ends his sermon with a warning an invitation, and a promise. Today we're going to look at the warning. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, this may be one of the most unsettling passages in all of Scripture. Because in it, Jesus tells us that there will be people who rightly call him Lord, who do very religious things, and yet in the end, they will not enter into heaven. They will be cast out and judged as workers of lawlessness. I mean, how terrible would that be? To to live your whole life going to church, thinking that you are serving God, doing good deeds in the name of Jesus, and then to be turned away. I mean, this this question brings, this, this passage brings up the question, how do you know if you're actually saved? How do you know if you have eternal life? I love the picture, the picture of heaven that is given to us in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 9, the apostle John, he sees this vision. And he says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no, no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, let your mind's eye go here. This is the moment when all the people of God who have been saved from Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, to those first disciples, to modern-day disciples here in this room and, and, and disciples stretching out into the future that have yet to be born yet. This is all of them coming together. Oh, wait. Technology. Everybody who's been saved through, throughout the entire existence of mankind, they're, they're, they're coming On this one day, they've chosen to follow Jesus and be born again. This is the moment when people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, they stand before the throne. People from America, people from China, Afghanistan, from India, uh, from Africa, South America. Everyone who's ever been saved, they'll be standing there before the throne. And with a unanimous celebration, they're going to be celebrating what God has done. And what the redeemed say in this moment is salvation belongs to our God. They're they're revealing a relationship here. A relationship with this almighty God. That this is not the God who belongs to us. Rather, this is the God to whom the saved belong to. Like a son who says, that's my dad. Salvation belongs to our God. The God that we belong to. When the redeemed say our God, they're speaking of the God of the Bible who related to mankind in a very specific way, in the way of covenants. Covenants are agreements. They're promises which define a special relationship. Listen, we've got covenants still today. A good example of a modern-day covenant is the marriage relationship, for better and worse, in sickness and health, forsaking all others, till death do us part. So, as we ask the question, how do you know that you have eternal life? One of the primary things that you have to see And it's what the Bible shows us over and over again is that salvation comes in the form of a relationship, not a religion. It's not uncommon for people to conclude that because religion speaks of salvation, that then salvation is experienced through a religion. This is not what the Bible teaches us. 
The Bible shows us that God is not very much impressed with our religion. God looks at a man's heart, not at the outward appearance. When you think about it, religion in the most simplest definition can be defined as any activity that you do on a regular basis. Now, you, you add a little bit more, you do it on a regular basis for spiritual reasons, but, but it can be said that I religiously brush my teeth every morning because I do it every day. I will do so religiously. Listen, in the fall of every year, and I've been consistent on this since the early 1990s, um, in the fall of, of the year, I will gather at a very specific place on a specific day and observe a very specific activity quite religiously. I mean, really, if someone from a foreign country were to come and observe my life and they would see me gather at this place every Sunday, sometimes on Monday, sometimes on Thursday, sometimes on Thursday, depending on the football schedule. But they would see me. They would think, I think this man is having a religious experience because sometimes I raise my hands. I get excited and I gyrate. I sing some songs. Sometimes there are moments of prayer. <laughs> I will try to influence my family to join me in this, in this experience. There's a, a level of devotion in this experience. And I do this every fall during the Dallas Cowboy football season. Now listen, if my expression during a football game can resemble spiritual expressions... Can you not see how the almighty God, the God of the universe, that he would not be impressed with our religious actions? I mean, look, this is the God who can form immense galaxies and design incredibly complex systems inside a single cell. This is the God who's not bound by time and space, but, but rather he binds time and space within himself. This is the God whose foolishness is greater than the combination of all of man's wisdom. And he's not beholden to man because we bow toward a certain city on a regular basis. Nor is he impressed with people who gather in a particular building. You know what God says about religion? In the book of James, we are told this. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He says, you want to do something over and over again for a spiritual person? Go and help those who can't help themselves. Take care of those widows. Take care of those orphans. Over and over again, the Bible points out the flaws of human religion. Even the religion that is meant to honor him. And I'm not saying that religion is bad, or that religion is pointless. What I'm saying is that if anyone thinks that because you adhere to a religion, that that's somehow going to earn you eternal life, then you're mistaken. The Bible shows us that salvation is experienced through the context of a relationship, not through religious practice. And that is precisely what Jesus is teaching in this scripture. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? 
cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Look at, listen to what these people are doing religiously. Prophecy, casting out demons, these mighty works. Some of your translations say it's performing miracles. Those are all very religious activities. I mean, these actions go well beyond just going to church on a regular basis or leading a Bible study. I mean, these actions seem to go beyond serving as a deacon or an elder or even preaching and pastoring. These are not trite religious observances. These are significant actions of a very spiritual person. I mean, look, even confessing Jesus as Lord doesn't entitle someone to eternal life. You've heard the phrase, talk is cheap. God knows this. That's why he looks at our hearts. Jesus says many will come expecting eternal life, only be turned away, and many will protest. They'll, they'll, they'll protest by recounting their religious actions in life. <coughs> and, and many will have been religious leaders who prophesied and cast out demons and performed miracles. And Jesus warns us, don't put your faith in what you do. There's no magic words that God has to submit to. There's no religious motions that God must yield to, whether it be dancing for rain or bowing to Mecca or being sprinkled or dunked in a baptism. Jesus warns us, don't trust in what you have done. Trust in who he is and what he has done. And that trust comes in the form of a relationship. Look, it's not immediately obvious, this relational aspect in our English translations, but when you look at this passage in the original language, the Greek, uh, it becomes quite obvious. God was so wise to have the gospel written down in a time when Greek was the dominant language of, of the world. Um, the Greek language is beautifully precise and detailed, whereas English is really kind of brutish um, and complex. The, the English language can be unclear if you're just listening to it. Our, our language has many words that sound the same, but have a completely different meaning. Like, like I could say, there is a sale on a sale today. And I'm indicating that if you were into boating, that you could go to this place and for a discounted price, you can get a sale on a sale. But if, but if you're not from around here and I sit there and say, like, how do I interpret that? There's a sale on a sale. What are we stacking them? What's the, what's the deal? That's our English. English originated in northern Europe with, with Germanic tribes, a place where it's cold and you have to work hard to eat. When, when you have to work to eat, You've got a higher priority than sitting around thinking philosophical thoughts. Because you've got to go out there and, and hunt. And you've got to break up this frozen ground to get a potato out of it. And so you spend your time working. Greek originated in the Mediterranean area where, where things just grew. Um, when we think of the great philosophers, the great thinkers of old, we think of the Greeks. Plato, Aristotle. Socrates, Greek art has people depicted in lounging areas where somebody's just feeding them grapes because you don't have to work to get a grape. It's just there. And so these people in that Mediterranean area, because they weren't working, they spent time thinking. 
the Greeks figured out <coughs> love has different facets to it. They've got three primary words for love. English has one. And I use that same word to describe my feelings for my wife, for the Dallas Cowboys, and for peanut M&Ms. In the Greek language, there are two words for to know. There's a word that's pronounced ida, and I put up the Greek on there for you, and a word that's pronounced enosko, all right? Enosko is where we get our word for knowledge, all right? This is, this is when you know something because you've been taught. This is where you, you've learned something because you've, you've, you know it because you've learned it through study. It's been given to you by someone else. The other one, this word, Ida, this is where you know something by personal experience. All right? And there's a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus personally. Jesus, when he says, away from me, I never knew you, he uses that second word, Ida. It's that personal knowledge. Look, let me illustrate it from the sports world. We already got some Dallas Cowboys stuff going on here. Dak Prescott, um, the quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, his real name is Rain Dakota Prescott. He was born July 29th, 1993. He's 25 years of age. His mother passed away in 2013 from colon cancer. He was drafted in the fourth round from Mississippi State. Last year, he threw for 3,885 yards 22 touchdowns, and he rushed for 305 yards and six touchdowns. He's listed at six foot two, 235 pounds, and according to Wikipedia, he lives in Frisco, Texas somewhere. Now suppose next year the Dallas Cowboys earn the right to play in the Super Bowl, the big game. And as I'm out about my... In, just doing my errands in Frisco, I run into him. Dakota Rain Prescott, I'm one of your faithful. I've gathered every Sunday, Monday, and Thursday, and even Saturday games for years to honor your team. I, I've, I've worn jerseys. I even had a Vinnie Testaverde jersey once upon a time ago. I've worn ball caps promoting the glory of your team. I, I tell him that I actually, and I actually do, I have his rookie football card in a package that we've never opened. Listen to this. I, I tell him how sometimes I get so moved during the game, I will lift my hands. How I, I've, I, I tell him I've never cheered for the Redskins, the Eagles, or the Giants. I give him all the statistics Hey, you, you threw for 3,885 yards last year and 22 touchdowns. I know these things. Look at all that I know. And because of this, can you not see how, how, much I, how important I am because I know what I know and I, I understand what I understand. That should merit me getting tickets to the Super Bowl. Because of what I've done, because of what I've known, surely you should give me tickets to the big game. 
Then I wait with expectation for his response. What do you suppose Dak Prescott would say to me in my request for Super Bowl tickets? He would probably say, who are you? Do we know each other? Look, when it comes to being saved, it's not what you know, it's who you know. We can know a lot about Jesus. We can know his statistics. We can memorize his teachings. We can wear clothes that promote him on his team. We can gather for the weekly celebrations. You can even get a little tattoo of his symbol on your foot. You can do all this stuff for Jesus. You can cheer alongside with people who know him personally. But if you don't know him personally, that's what Jesus is teaching. So what you did all this stuff? I never knew you. Jesus tells us, on that last day, many will say to him, Jesus, I was baptized. Jesus, I was sprinkled. Jesus, I went to Catholic school. Jesus, I got a seminary degree. I went on mission trips. I taught Bible studies. I worked as a pastor. I sang songs about you. I built hospitals in your name. I built schools in your name. Here's my spiritual resume. Surely that qualifies me for entrance into heaven. And Jesus will look at him and say, I'm sorry. I don't know you. You did lots of stuff in my name. But you did it for yourself. Not for me. You're still a worker of lawlessness. You see, salvation is not a matter of what you know. It's not a matter of what you do. It's a matter of who you know. And you know this, Jesus has enosco. He has that kind of knowledge of everybody in the world. There is not a single person that drives by this church on park where Jesus goes, who was that? Like, he knows the name. In the Bible, salvation is always pictured in the context of a personal relationship. A verse that I, you know, I've cherished, 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul writes, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed in, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted. You know what word Paul uses there? He uses the relational word. He says, listen, it's not because I was told that Jesus rose from the grave. I, I know him personally. I've experienced him answering prayer. I've experienced the presence of his, of his spirit in my life. I, I, I know him personally, and that's why I am confident that when my heart stops beating, he's got me. 1 John 5.13, Apostle John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Guess what version of the word he uses there? It's the relational word. I've written this to you. So that you can know that you're saved. But not just know it academically. Not just know it because you've memorized things and you could check it off as sound doctrine. No, now you can know it, but also know it personally. Hey, this is what the Bible says. I've experienced it. Like one of the things the Bible says, 1 Corinthians, it says that without the Spirit of God, you cannot understand the the things of God. They're spiritually discerned. Before I met Jesus, 
my parents would take me to church and I would go to Bible studies and it would, none of it would register. It, it, wouldn't, it, it wouldn't stick. Y'all remember the um, Charlie Brown cartoons when he goes to school and the teacher's up there teaching? What is the sound? Wah, 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 wah. That's all I got. Could sit through a whole Bible study, a whole uh, church service and just get wah, 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 wah. Then I gave my heart to Jesus. I said, Jesus, I need you. You come and you be my Lord. Then I opened up the Bible. And I'm just telling you, it's like the word started jumping off the page to me. And I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, it wasn't that, that after salvation, it was the first time that I, my eyes had been on it. But it was the first time that my heart understood it. I write these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. It's not academic. It's not intellectual. It's experiential. Experiencing Jesus answering prayer. Experiencing him providing in your life. Experiencing his providence. Experiencing the freedom that comes from submitting to God's law. Experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit. And asking the question, how do you know if you're saved? Well, it really depends on how do you answer this question. How do you know him? Do you know him? You can walk out of here today knowing about him. And you'll miss the promises of eternity. You can walk out of here today knowing him personally. November 17th, 1991. I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew was that I needed God in my life. And I said, Jesus, you've got my life. And I'm sure in his way, he says, Bob, it's good to meet you. Here's one of the beautiful things about this passage that's so unsettling. Hebrews says that it's impossible for God to lie. I mean, listen, when you know all things, there's not even a need to change the truth. You've got it all done. You're just like, this is reality. He commands all reality. Ultimately, it's impossible for God to lie. If Jesus knew you personally for half a minute before your death, He could not look at you and say, I never knew you. He said, yeah, I remember that. I remember. I met you. I mean, it was 30 seconds ago, right before you died. But I know you. I know you. I met you when you were six years old. And I watched you as you wandered away. And you went the way that I would not have ever led you to do that. But I knew you. And my sacrifice is big enough to cover all that waywardness. It's not what you do. It's not what you know. It's how do you know Jesus? Do you know him personally? Has there ever been a moment when you said uh, as a personal response from your will in accordance to what God is doing to say, God, I'm, I'm giving you my life. This isn't my mom and dad telling me to do it. This isn't grandpa telling me to do it. This is me. I need you. Have my life. Has there been that moment? 
when the God of heaven has stepped out of heaven and into your heart to save you? If there has, you don't have to be nervous with what Jesus is teaching here. Because if you've been saved for even one minute of your life, he'll save you forever. Philippians tells us that being confident of this, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. That's why they sing, when we get to heaven, we're going to be singing, salvation belongs to our God. It doesn't belong to you and me. You and me don't control it. It belongs to God and to the Lamb. Has there been that moment? If there hasn't today, why not today? If you've just spent your life, you've been taught all this stuff, you know a lot about him, but you don't know him personally, why not today? Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. I'm going to stand right here and I'm going to ask you to do the same thing I did November 17th, 1991. I walked the aisle of a church and I met Jesus. Let me pray with you. Let me help you take that first step of faith. Not only will it change your life, it'll change you forever. And you can know, you can know Firsthand, experientially, presence and the power of Jesus in your life. Father God, your son has taught us well. We can apply all the things that he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount and have a great life. And so he ends it by saying, listen, don't just take my teaching. We have to take him. God, your word even tells us that on that last day, many will say to you, Lord, didn't we do this and didn't we do that? And many will have to hear those awful words, away from me, I never knew you. God, I pray that of that many, that not one of those would be a person in this room today. That everyone here, will come to a personal faith and trust in you, Jesus. Trusting in what you did for us on the cross, taking the penalty for our sin, trusting in the power of your resurrection, and entrusting their life to you to guide and direct for your namesake and your glory. God, I do pray. Because I know in these moments... Oftentimes, we will just not take that next step because we have a fear. We have a fear what people think. It's unreasonable, God, but it holds us back. God, I pray that today, that if there be one here who has not been saved, they don't have that personal relationship with you, that you would call to them so strongly, that they wouldn't care what people might think. They would care about what you think. And that today would be the day that they come to know you personally, that that relationship, that saving relationship starts. I pray for that. Father God, I also thank you that in the midst of that passage, that causes us to think and ponder.
there's also an assurance. God, that if there be some here today who just, they know they've been away, they know they've been wrong, that God, you'd call them to repentance and that they could walk with you in full assurance and your promises and your provision. Father God, in these next moments, have your way with us. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.